the light furiously thrusts us towards the vernal equinox, we offer you another summoning. Welcome to Chasing the Dragon. Welcome to the third summoning of the Chasing the Dragon gaming podcast. In our last summoning, we brought you thoughts about the future of the gaming world. We brought to light a small portrait of the gaming landscape as it stands today. Well, on this week's summoning, we invite you to taste the delicacies of the gaming realms from the past. Right on, Andres. Last time, we said that we were going to explore the generation gap in gaming. However, after reflecting on the interviews we did previously, recently, we think uh, maybe it's more about the evolution of the gaming world and about games and also how the people who play the games have changed as well. All right. Now, let us set purpose to task and get on with the interviews. The first uh, person we're interviewing is Indy, and a good friend of mine for about four years now. Uh, Met him not too long after I moved to Sweden. So we played uh, D&D together and other games. It's been fun. So Indy, welcome to Chasing the Dragon. My name is Indy Nidell. I am from Texas, and I lived in a whole bunch of places after living in Texas and came to Sweden 18 years ago. Uh, I started gaming in the mid-1970s in Houston, Texas. Now, I was born in the, in the late 60s, so I was only, I must have been maybe nine, when I went down the street. I had my friends, the Levy brothers, Jason, Craig, and Kyle, and Jason Levy was a year older than me. And I came over, and Jason was with his friend Tom, and they were playing something called Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons. And I'd never heard of Dungeons and Dragons before. There's, there was no basic set then. There were no of the advanced books. This was before that. They used, you know, Greyhawk, Blackmore, and Eldritch Wizardry, the actual oldest, you know, the little paper. I don't know why I'm moving my hands to show you the size of, but uh, the little paper books that were, you know, half the size of an A4, you know piece of paper and 20, 30 pages long each. And I didn't know what it was, but um, Jason said, you want to play with us? And I said, what is it? And it's like, you kill monsters and you go on adventures and stuff. And, and I thought it was going to be a board game. He said, no, there's no board game. And then he showed me the dice. And I had never seen any dice that were not six-sided dice before. And that, I mean, I don't know if, I'm sure anybody out there remembers the first time they saw like D&D or gaming dice. 20, 20-sided dice, how cool is that? That was awesome. My favorite one was the 12-sider. I don't know why. But um, he, we rolled up my character, but it wasn't rolling it up. It was, he said, okay, um, now, you know, you're pretty young and pretty small, so you probably don't have a lot of strength. So my strength was like 11 or 10 or something like that. 
but you go to a school for smart kids, so you probably have a lot of intelligence. And my intelligence was like 17 or 16. I had a lot of wisdom. I, I was a cleric. My first character was a cleric. And I had eight blood boxes, not hit points. I had eight blood boxes. And he drew little boxes on my character sheet. And when you got hurt, they'd cross off a little, he'd fill in, like shade in a little box. And that's how he played. And uh, I thought it was the coolest, coolest game ever. But I didn't know how I could play without Jason Levy, because he had been given the books, the, the Greyhawk and Blackmore and Eldritch Wizardry, and there was no basic set for another like year or so. So the only times I ever played were over at Jason's house every couple of weeks. And again, he was a bit older than me, and he didn't always want to hang out with younger kids. So uh, this was the way it went until my friend Matt, who played with me and Jason sometimes, and my cleric, I wish I knew what my cleric's name was, but it was probably something really esoteric and dumb, you know, because... They always like Brothar or something like that, you know, um, said that at the parent teacher supply shop, which uh, sold, um, you know, huge amounts of paper and, you know, stuff for parents and teachers. They sold Dungeons and Dragons dice. They didn't have any books or anything, but they sold the dice. And on Saturday mornings from 10 o'clock until 12 o'clock, there was a guy named Sheldon who was like 16 or 17 that ran adventures. So I went to the Saturday morning there and it was awesome. Sheldon was this really cool like high school kid and it was only kids my age like seven or eight kids my age and my my I had to bring my little brother you know who got into this as well of course because you know little brothers follow big brothers and maybe for like six months <clears throat> every saturday morning for just two hours i'd go to the teacher's parent teacher supply shop play dungeons and dragons by the end of this the basic set had come out the little box that had the had its own cheap plastic dice but i had good dice before i had cheap dice and uh, the three level basic booklet and Slowly came out the Monster Manual, DM Guide, and Player's Handbook. And of course, we were, I was totally, totally, totally into it. And the great thing about Dungeons & Dragons then was, and the thing my parents liked about it, well, my dad liked it because my dad likes fantasy. My mom liked it because my little brother would like learn stuff about like, like real stuff, you know, not just, not just TV junk. You'd, you'd actually want to learn about how walls work, how they're constructed so they can keep people out of your castle, or why, how this, or even how basic traps and things work. Mom thought it was cool that we actually learned stuff. And we played in school every, you know, five minutes between periods. That was cool. You know, in study hall, if you could get away, it's kind of hard to roll the dice on the table without making a noise because you're supposed to be quiet. And it was really, it was those, the golden years of D&D for me, well, it wasn't just D&D, but the golden years were 79 to 83 for me, right? And there was that big explosion there because Dungeons & Dragons was the first thing that took off. It was like the space invaders of role-playing games, you know? And, but then, of course, came the Pac-Man and the Defender and the Tempest of role-playing games, which was Gamma World, uh, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, Boot Hill. Boot Hill was never very popular, but that was my favorite not D&D role-playing game, the Wild West Boot Hill, when you had... You had um, Gun accuracy, throwing accuracy, gun speed, those were your, 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 your things and stuff. And, and you had a generic map. Again, I'm using my hands to illustrate. Can everybody out there see my generic map of little hexes in a city with, you could make these banks and stuff and you shot certain distances. I, I love Boot Hill. Gamma World I thought was good, but you couldn't make adventures in Gamma World like you could with D&D. You know, you were so focused on your mental mutations and your physical, ooh, I've got five arms. Which, but that doesn't help you make a cool adventure, you know, as, as, where you go up in magic spells like in D&D and stuff, you know. Uh, I liked Traveler. I think I was a bit young for Traveler at first. You know, when you're 11 or 12, there's so many books and so much to do with Traveler. And to make an adventure that goes through the whole universe instead of a defined city or a dungeon, you know. 
so I never played so much Traveler. But D&D, I kept playing, and I backed it up with, there was the great arcade explosion back then from 79 to 83. I gamed con, uh, continuously until I left Texas in 1985 and went to university. And I didn't play any role-playing games at all in university. I don't know why. There was so much else to do, basically. And I didn't know people that were, that were gaming there. I didn't play computer games, video games, role-playing games. When I moved to New York, I was in New York for three years before I left for Europe. And I lived with a set of brothers when I first moved there in 1990 after university. And they played, but they were, they were, the two little brothers were a bunch younger than me. They were, you know, like 14 or 15. And by this time I was in my twenties. So they had unearthed arcana and they had a different perspective on, you know, barbarians and characters. I, I didn't know, you know, and new rules for monks and critical hit tables and things. Um, so I played with them for a year or so, but really until just recently, that was it. You know, I've always had incredibly fond memories of of especially Dungeons and Dragons, but all role-playing games in general, and how much fun it is. And I love being Dungeon Master or Game Master. I'm a really good Dungeon Master, as you know. <laughs> um, I think it's great fun to, to just to make shit up. Um, now, I've started playing the last year or two. I've played occasionally with, with, with one of you guys, with Ryan there, which is a lot of fun. But uh, I've never gotten back into it. So I, have, I don't know the whole... I've not only can I, I can say I don't know the new generation of role-playing games, I don't know the last three generations of, of role-playing games. But ask me about the 70s and the 80s and stuff, and I'm, I'm your man. But you did play board games as well, right, Indy? Um, well, as a kid, I played standard kid board games. I played, you know... I did like the ones that involved more strategy, like Stratego and stuff, for example. But like the, like, you know... My favorite of the modern games, I like Ticket to Ride, actually, which you introduced me to. Which, uh, but things like that didn't really exist. The only games that we really had when I was a kid were the traditional ones. Until things like, as you mentioned when we were talking before, there's like Dark Tower when that came out. That was, that was different. That was fun. Um, we didn't have the card-based, you know, magic thing. There was a game called... Uh, what was it called? Called... Oh, I think it was just called Wizard. Not Wizards. Wizard. That was a simple card and board, card and paper board game. That was a semi role playing game in 88, 81 around then that I played, but that never caught on. I think it was only me and, and a couple of people on my street that I ever met that played that and stuff. Um, I, the, the board games that I played in the early 80s that I really enjoyed that were like a more modern kind that weren't just Risk or something were uh, Squad Leader, Panzer Blitz. I liked Squad Leader very much. And Axis and Allies, my absolute favorite, 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 favorite board game, and the one that I'm best at too. So, and I, I don't know why. I don't know why this is because I'm, I'm, I'm sure like anybody else, I have some strategy things that I'm good at and some that I'm less good at and stuff. But even I did play Axis and Allies in university actually. That I played in late university and in the summer times with friends and stuff. I forgot about that. But Axis and Allies, I never, ever, ever ever lose in Axis and Allies. And I cannot tell you why. I, but, and people, you know, and it doesn't matter if I roll really well. It doesn't matter if I roll really badly. I know that, and it doesn't matter. Like, like it's harder to win if you're the Axis and if you're, if you're two experienced players and you happen to be Germany and Japan. It's a lot harder to win with those two. Doesn't matter. I'll still win. So, and I, I wish I could say it's because that I'm good at this sort of strat. I don't know why it is that I always win at Axis and Allies, but just so you know. Is that a challenge? Yeah. You can take it as a challenge, sure. I, I'm sure I take it as a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, cool. Well, well, um, after we play the game, we'll have to. You'll have to do a podcast where you guys are whining and crying about <laughs> how I rolled so well, and it was totally unfair <laughs> that all my special weapons rolls were great. And, yeah, and I moved chips over so Egypt shouldn't have had 37 tanks on it because it's illegal because you can only have two. <laughs> so, yeah, but that was, that's, that's really, again, that, the, even my board gaming history was basically a bit later than my role-playing games. If I say role-playing, I was playing really between, say, 76 and 85. Board gaming was, would be between like 80 and 90, you know, or 80 and 89, I guess. After living in South Carolina, I didn't play Axis and Allies anymore. What was your experience after coming to Europe, though? Well, I was, when I was living in Eastern Europe and in Turkey, I wasn't playing any games. I was playing Understand was, was, was the name. It was a role-playing game. I was, I was a first-level first level foreigner. What, what do you think defines games like Axis and Allies or the games that were made and were popular in the 70s and 80s? The difference between the, let's call it second generation of games, I'll count first generation of games, all board games from the 1870s until the 1970s, just for the sake of argument. Um, the second generation of games, although most, if not all, of them used a die or several dice in them, you didn't need luck to win. I mean, if you play the game of life or Monopoly, well, Monopoly, sure, there's a lot of skill involved. But, you know, if you roll your first time around and you land on all four train stations and, and, and you know, and a boardwalk or Mayfair, whichever you're playing, that's a great start. You've got a huge advantage. But if you play Axis and Allies, if you roll really well, okay, great. You're going to win more battles. But even... You, no matter how badly you roll, if you're a better player, you're going to win. It's just the way it is. You know, it might take longer, and you might have some setbacks. But that, I think that, and it worked like that with with most of the advanced board games. You took out a lot of the luck element, and put in. I mean, every board game, the old games, had some some amount of luck and some amount of skill required. The new generation, the second generation, the luck was less a lesser amount required and a greater amount of skill required. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, can you compare maybe games like Risk in like first generation to games like Axis and Allies? Hmm. How would I compare Risk? See, Axis and Allies to me is like Risk on steroids. You know, I, I like you have so much more control because it's not just armies, you know, and it's not just, oh, I have to take over country, any country by the end of my turn so I get a card. So, so I'll be the next one and I'm going to get 71 armies and whoever turns in the next three cards is going to have a flood of armies and is totally going to win the game. That never would happen in Axis and Allies. I mean, you might want to, you'll say, oh, I'll take over this country. So at the end of the, I have one more, you know, I'm one higher on the list. So I get another dollar bill and stuff. But taking over that is going to definitely leave you open to losing two countries or three countries, which in, in, in one turn is going to be a really, really bad move. And you really... There's such a balance between the offensive factors and the defensive factors of each piece. Like infantry, they attack like crap. You, you can only kill something if you roll a one out of a six with infantry. 
but they're cheap. And if you're Russia and you spend all your money on infantry, they defend two out of six. And you can take down a whole squadron of planes, a whole fleet of tanks, just by pumping out loads and loads and loads of guys, which of course is exactly what Russia did, you know. So I think it's very, and America starts off with a lot of money and a lot of, not a whole lot of, a lot of, whole lot of armies. And you're far away. So what you really have to build is long distance things like bombers, aircraft carriers, battleships, which is what America did, you know. So in many ways, it, um, I think it's much more a, a mirror of what actually happened, what it's supposed to represent. Having said that, um, when, when they made Axis and Allies, that was one of a series of six games. Was it Milton? Who made Axis and Allies? What comes? Is Milton Bradley? They made, we, we bought a couple more with the summer that I lived in South Carolina and we played Axis and Allies every day. And we play like 15 hour games. We were all pretty good, you know. We play five guys and it would really take, it was a marathon, but you know, beer. You know, <laughs> yeah. There was that uh, game master series that Milton Bradley put out. Um, my favorite, <clears throat> my favorite was Conquest of the Empire. Yeah, did you ever play that indie? And we spent a week playing that, and it was good. But it, there was, there was. I, I remember there was something about the movement and attack that to to us limited it. There was something that we thought seemed kind of not cheating, but seemed like it didn't. It didn't like the moves. And Axis and Allies were uh, great. That it cost you a move to go from land to sea. See the line. You really had to plan everything out and stuff. I, 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 I still, yeah, that's my still my favorite, favorite, favorite board game. Squad Leader is a good game too, though. I liked the, a lot of the, I liked a lot of the World War II games, which is interesting because I'm not particularly interested. Like, you know, I do a lot of historical research in general. I studied history in university. I still do the baseball channel and stuff. But in terms of history, World War II has never been a particularly interesting period to me. But I love their games. It'd be really interesting to see how you react to some of the newer games, because Ryan, as you know, Ryan and I both play newer games every week. So seeing you play some new stuff, it'd be kind of cool how you'd react to it. I would very much be interested in seeing what third and fourth generation games are like and what they have to offer. That I remember second generation, one new feature was electronics, you know, like Dark Tower, of course, or you'd have games that had a castle and the castle made lights and sounds. And okay, if you didn't set up the castle, you could still play the game, but why would you? Why would you? Yeah. What does Gary Gygax look like? He's dead. What did he? Okay, I know what he looks like. That. Isn't he a big guy? Like a big Wait, didn't he commit shooter? suicide? Didn't I read that somewhere? Or maybe that was just an urban legend. It's the, totally the kind of urban legend you'd hear. Oh, you know, the guy that made Dungeons and Dragons committed suicide. Yeah. Possessed by demons. Well, you remember that Tom Hanks movie from the 80s, yeah. right? What was that called? Uh, so that everybody Mazes out there. Mazes and Monsters. Uh, to, uh, Mazes and Monsters. Everybody, everybody, everybody who ever played Dungeons and Dragons, even once, watched the movie Mazes and Monsters. The ending will shock you, and you will learn something. So are there any new modern games that you have tried? Well, the only recent, re recent game that I've played, I even played the app on my phone, actually, is Ticket to Ride, which, uh, well, which Ryan showed me a year or two ago. Which, and that's brilliant. That's a fantastic game. Great concept, great idea, great all the way through. So, um, yeah. Uh, How do you think it's different than the, the second generation games? Well, the only element of luck that's involved is when you're getting your initial missions, right? You, they might be close to each other, they might be far away from each other, but if you have any skill, you should be able to plan that, you know? And when, of course, you're deciding, hmm, should I take more missions? Do I think I can complete more missions? 
or maybe my missions are so far away from each other that damn it, I'm going to take some more missions and get some that are close to each other. That's the only element of luck there. Everything else is thinking through is trying to read what the other person's trying to do. I think that's brilliant. I mean, it's an even smaller element of luck and an even greater element of skill. You know? So when you lose, you really, really can't blame anybody but yourself. You know, I mean, if you know, yeah, you really can't. Right on, Indy. Thanks so much. That was a great interview. Moving on to our second guest. Our second guest today is Ulf. Ulf is a uh, gamer, LARPer, storyteller, dungeon master, poet, playwright, and the manager of the board gaming department at Science, fi- science Fiction Bookhandeln, uh, the largest nerd shop in all of Sweden. Uh, so without any further ado, take it away, Ulf. Um, uh, my name is Ulf Hesselbeck. Minority profile uh, is, you know, pretty much role-playing games and uh, werewolves and zombie movies. A lot of fantasy and sci-fi paperbacks, and I write poetry. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And um, I got into gaming through role-playing games when I was a kid, like a small kid. First time I played role-playing games, I, if I recall correctly, I might be a year or two off. Uh, I was about seven or eight. And I played Advanced Dungeons Dragons with a friend of a friend who was, and he was older and he'd gotten the books in England. And after that, I played the first edition of Drucker the Mourner or um, Dragons and Demons, which is, you know, a thinly veiled ripoff. Uh, but it used the basic role playing system, which I didn't know at the time, of course. Um, and uh, mostly it's been role playing games for me. Uh, I went into LARPing as well when I got older. Um, and then board games uh, and, and, the, and things like that didn't really come into play until just like recently, maybe say 12 years ago or so. Um, but so mostly I've been a role player and um, mostly I've been game mastering or dungeon mastering or storytelling or whatever you want to call it. Well, it seems like role-playing is the common gateway drug for most gamers. Why do you think that is? Because when it started, it was very easy to pick up. Uh, it was the way they sold the games, even, I mean, even Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, um, was like you're supposed to tell a story. You're just supposed to play a game or just have fun with it. And it really lends itself if you're a kid. I mean, you're already into role-playing games. You know, you want to try to be Robin Hood, Robin Hood, or um, cops and robbers, or you know, whatever. Um, so I think role-playing games are in that way easily accessible, or at least they used to be. Um, and I think that's probably why they work as a gateway. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that one. Do you have any specific early memories? or memories of, of playing games that um, can illustrate that point? I think most of my most of my gaming memories uh, that are really like a bit of a cut above are mostly role-playing game related and fairly specific. And role-playing game stories can be really tiresome unless you were there. <laughs> but I'll try to make it entertaining as well as I can. Um, I remember uh, the first time I played... Um, I played Kult, the Swedish role-playing game Kult, with the people that got to be my regular gaming group for a very long time. And they were not, they were very 
gamers, like very much gamers. They were um, they really like to level up and increase their stats, get the get the nice kind of gear. And cult was never really about that for me. Uh, and I was always a bit of a acting ham. <laughs> So I got people to walk around. I got people to, uh, I described nightmares for them. And they were sitting in the, in the corner of the kitchen, you know, banging their heads against the cupboards. Not that hard, but they were really, I mean, I got these people who were not really actors or any, or any kind or Im- improvisationists or anything like that. I got them really immersed into a story and getting them, getting them intensely involved. And it really mattered to them what was going to happen and that that memory sticks with me because we had uh that was a campaign that run ran for uh the first one maybe ran for two years or so maybe one year one and a half um and that that first time because then we had that going for a very long time but that first time when i played with them i've never met them before but i really could i could reach out and i could get them to game in a way that i wanted and that and in a way that they figured out that this was fun and they never knew. <laughs> so what was it that really got you into board gaming those 12 years ago? I did play Talisman when I was a kid because it was there was uh, it was out in in the Swedish edition and I played a game called Combat Cars it was also Swedish produced. I'm guessing thinly ripped off from uh, some sort of British license as well, I think. But I never really got into board gaming. Um, I got into board gaming. I figured out that it was a great way to share gaming with my son, for example, because he was uh, from the start. He wasn't I mean, he wasn't big enough to enjoy, of course, role playing games. Uh, I tried to, but my gaming got a little bit too. I scared him off, <laughs> frankly. He's been playing a little bit more playing games, but not with me. Um, uh, I, I, I didn't have the proper censorship in my head to you know, uh, get to a level where he was more comfortable when he was a kid or younger. I think, um, so Talisman, again, when the, when the new edition came out, was very much a thing for me because I was like... Um, Oh, I play this. It was the whole nostalgia thing. Uh, I noticed that the game was actually improved, and I mean, not in any big leaps and bounds, but at least like you know, little nudges here and there. Uh, I when I discovered the um, the Cthulhu Mythos board games, like Arkham Arkham Horror mainly, um, it was was also a pretty cool thing because I've always been very much into the Lovecraftian uh, mythos. And I enjoy that game very much, but since the the whole uh, cooperative thing, and it's a game very much about immersion, so it's almost like a light role playing game in a sense. Um, other than that, I'm. It's been. I uh, also when when last night on Earth came out, because <laughs> I've been a bit of a. I've, I've turned into more more or less. I've turned into a zombie fanatic. I really enjoy the whole zombie thing and when last night on earth came out i felt that hey they made a game for me (laughs) and it's also it's also a very very immersive game it's not the system and the math behind it is so so but if you play it with gusto and immersion immersion it gets to be a lot of fun so ulf 
typically when you buy a game, you know, you have the game and there's your set game and you can play it and it's all good to go. Uh, if you want expansions later, you can do research online to find out what's in the expansion to see if you want it or need it. Um, and that's how things work. Uh, in the 90s, um, a different model was kind of added to the gaming world. And that's the kind of collectible model. <clears throat> Speaking, of course, of the model utilized by Magic the Gathering and Warhammer, as well as other companies. And it's a model that kind of works on randomization and constant consumption of keeping of this product. How do you feel about the collectible aspect of board gaming and tabletop gaming? Um, do you feel it's a boon or is it kind of harmful? I can understand the business sense behind it, but as a consumer, of course, it annoys me. Um, I think that the collectible aspect has, for older gamers, a tendency to break games more than they actually make them accessible. Because we are um, adult enough to not fall for the hype kind of thing. Of course, um, that being said, I know a lot of adults that you know keep buying Magic cards, even if it's not the same uh, even if magic is doing well now, it's not the same as it used to be when it when it, you know when it came out, where people went insane buying cards all over the place. Uh, same thing with Warhammer. I think they um, they stopped at. Uh, um, I mean, every as far as I know, somebody can feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Most publishers or companies started off as being gamers, but they ended up being businessmen or business people, to be correct. Uh, and I think, I mean, of course, you have to make, you have to find a business model that works because have, running a business means you have to make a continuous profit. And as to the solution to that, I don't know. But as a consumer, uh, the collectible aspect, especially in those cases where, for example, pre-painted miniatures for uh, Dungeons and Dragons or in today it's Pathfinder or um, Magic Booster Packs or uh, when I buy a product... I want to know what I'm buying. I don't want to, you know, buy blindly and just the thrill of opening a new package and not knowing is not nearly uh, big enough <laughs> for me to make it worth it. Not especially, especially if it regards using miniatures in role playing games, because for me, I mean, a role playing game for me is very much um, immersive experience. And if I have to buy, like, I don't know four boxes of miniature boosters just to get the right amount of troglodytes it really you know it's really not worth it so since you have so much experience and working at the sci-fi bookstore that um do you think that in the in the past 20 years or i would say maybe around 25 20 years ago that there was a a, a really significant shift in the way that board games are played I think so. I wasn't really uh, a colleague of mine was more, he had more of a, he doesn't work there anymore, unfortunately. Um, but he had, he had a very good sense of what was coming. So he really pushed through that sci-fi bookstore uh, should get more board games because he had a feeling it was coming. <laughs> and he was right. And I don't know if the way games are played are changing or, or have changed but i think the people who play them have changed for some reason it's not geeky anymore uh not at all um it's it is that there is a generation gap where where people my age i'm 42 um 
we recall games as being a little geeky. Uh, it wasn't something that, I mean, you could possibly play. I mean, if you play chess, you were a nerd, of course, um, but you, it was still a respected game. Uh, or if you played other, uh, it's called a Swedish game called Fia McKnuff. I'm not really even sure if there's an American analogy, but it's on a difficult level along the lines of Snakes and Ladders, even if it's not, if it's not the same game. One of those that was like, or Monopoly, of course, it was one of those that you could play with your family when we were kids. There were those kind of games, and there were the fun games who were really sort of really not mainstream. <laughs> and I think that somewhere somewhere along the line, the games that were fun were allowed into the mainstream, in a sense. Um, I'm thinking hipsters have a lot to do with it because um, I get, you know, of course, this is prejudice and not very scientific <laughs> at all, but I get the sense that there's uh, a fair amount of hipsters that, sort of go into the store and they they look for games and they want games of like a really diverse kinds of games they want anything from agricola to um talisman or um even like munchkin for some obscure reason is like a really big seller munchkin is a, i mean munchkin is a fun game but it's not really it's not really a game if you know what i mean it's 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 a fun pastime it's a great way to socialize. Maybe that, something that's just struck me now, maybe that is what changed, that games are allowed to be a social activity. It's not about, of course, there's always the sense of winning or losing or whatnot, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is getting together, maybe, you know, drink a glass of wine or have snacks or maybe even have dinner first and then bring out the games because it's a great way to socialize. Yeah, that's my experience too. Maybe one way of thinking about that is that games have grown up before maybe it was seen that after you graduated college you kind of put those games on the shelf and you never bring them out again i guess that's true uh it, it sounds sounds fairly likely I, I think also maybe computer games have something to do with it uh computer games is something that a lot of people grew up with now and they want to keep playing them even if they're adults so they do and Computer games have some things that they do really well, but they're not as social as a board game. And when you get older, there's a lot of, you know, you want to have couples dinners or you want to hang out with your friends like properly or um, you don't want to sit up until four o'clock in the morning drinking Mountain Dew just, to, you know, just to get that last level or that really cool purple uh, piece of weaponry or, or whatnot. And I think board games make gaming more accessible than computer games do, uh, specifically the type of games that the MMOs, for example, that really demand a lot of your time. A board game will take some time, but it will also give you a lot of social interaction at the same time. Maybe. Um, this is, I mean, very much a sort of unfounded philosophy of mine, but I think, I th I think I'm onto something. From my from my position as a gamer and as a, uh, as an employee at the at the bookend. So, do you prefer board games that kind of reflect your role playing experiences? In a way, um, I miss role playing. I don't get to do it uh, that much, or don't get to. I don't take the time to do it. I guess uh, is a more appropriate way of putting it. Uh, and I miss it from time to time. Um, those immersive or mainly immersive board games are the closest thing I can get. 
which of course I, I I appreciate that part. I like the the storytelling aspect, the characterization, the this like the whole background story or the backdrop of the whole of the whole thing. Which is why uh, there's a lot of computer games I just can't play because they're very hectic. So I don't, I'm too old. I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah, I really know what you mean. I, I really can't play first-person shooter games or even, well, I, I'm not totally uninterested in those, but I, I can't even play any kind of first-person perspective games. I, I, don't, I don't like that at all. I don't even like the kind of third-person perspective games where you're looking over the shoulder. Um, my favorite computer game of all time was Pools of Radiance. It was an AD&D game. And um, it was fantastic for the Commodore 64. That was a, like from a top-down view, and it was also turn-based. And I think both of those have a lot of connection to board gaming. And maybe even those computer games were, were based off of kind of board game mechanics. So I wonder, maybe there's some connection there. It's more restful. I mean, not all games. There are some exceptions. Uh, Escape from the Temple, mainly. Uh, but other than that, Board games are more restful because you're supposed to have the time to talk to the people around the table, especially especially if it's a cooperative game where you can where you're actually supposed to talk to the people around the table and try to get a notion. Okay, if you do this this turn, I'll try to do that, and if you try to accomplish that part, I'll then you can do this, um, which makes it even more interactive than uh, many other games. Not all. Do you have any observations of, say, playing with someone who's maybe 10 years or even to 20 years younger than you? Do you have any observations about how, how they play? Is it different? Or what, what are some differences between the way you play or games you like or so forth and, and, and them? I can't really make out a, a specific difference age-wise. Um, Mostly I play with people that are younger than me, uh, not all of them that much younger. I think maybe uh, they are more playful at their age than I was when I was that age. Maybe. Uh, I've always been fairly playful though, so that might be a, you know, just a <coughs> wild idea that I have no really no um no um, basis in reality but it's one of the things where it's at least they've been raised in with the image that it's okay to be playful um which i was not um as when when i was uh, 20 or 30 or and uh, that in between i it was mostly role-playing games for me um by far uh, dominantly role-playing games but I was also, and during that time, uh, when I, mostly when I was a little bit younger than that, uh, there was this you know, like big backlash against the role-playing games, like mainstream-wise, where we were you know, everything from Satanists to planning on taking over the government and whatnot. It was just kind of weird. But it, we did get a bit of a close-knit community from that. <laughs> And that's something that they might not. That's one thing that for them it's it's a granted, it's given that they can play games without being questioned, uh, which haven't been the case for me at least. It was always something that oh well, we're doing something a little bit forbidden right now. Some people might you know take offense at this, which of course was awesome <laughs> because we were kids and we got off on that kind of thing. When I was younger and playing 
board games back in the 80s and early 90s, I played a lot of games like Axis and Allies and Risk and games like that. But you don't really you you don't you haven't really talked about any of those. Did you ever play any any of those kind of war war large scale board games like that at all? I did play Risk um, maybe once or twice when I was a kid. I played Axis and Allies. Same thing there once or twice. I've they've never really gotten to me. I can see that they're adequate games, uh, but they've never really um, hooked me in any way. Um, Maybe because they're, I mean, I'm very much more of a, as I said before, or many times, I'm much more of an immersive gamer than a trying to win kind of gamer. And those games are very much win oriented and you have to figure out a good plan. And it's, it's, it's the same reason why I'm really, really poor at chess. I just can't, you know, get my head around the fact that, well, okay, I really need to think 15 moves ahead now and i really can't be bothered <laughs> i'll just you know screw it i'll just you know walk ahead and see what happens um which is not of course the <laughs> same thing again it's not very it's not a very good strategy games like that in the last 15 years have developed to be a more ga- uh, inclusive gaming experience for example in games like axis and allies and risk especially it's really an all or nothing situation there's one winner and everyone else is crushed and destroyed um, now, in a lot of games that have Risk as like its predecessor or its ancestor, for example, something like Small World, uh, no one is ever eliminated from the game and they use a victory point system. Which I think is smart um, because, of, uh, because of the simple fact, as you said, it's inclusive. If it's re- I mean, for example, having the experience of playing Talisman and knowing that for, for, with certainty that you will never win, you won't make it in time, is... I mean, it's not very, it's not very much fun. And in small world, at least you can, you know, you can get, have the illusion that, well, it just might make it um, since you're not eliminated at any point, which I think is smart. I think it's, uh, it's a, it's a clever way of making sure, because the one thing that board games have that other games do not, or um, specifically computer games and such, is the social aspect. And if you're having a, if you're doing it as a social thing, it's kind of boring if somebody can't be allowed to play. <laughs> just because they lost uh you want to make sure that people can play the game until then even if they're not doing all that great if you could imagine the perfect game the game that would make all of your gaming dreams come true what would that game be like i think it would be and <laughs> this is weird uh i think it would be something along the lines of dog soldiers if you know the movie uh, Dog Soldiers is, let's put it shortly, it's a werewolf movie about a bunch of soldiers that are uh, caught in a small cabin in the wilderness of Scotland and there's werewolves surrounding them. It's a great movie and I heartily recommend it, um, not only for werewolf fans. Um, and I would, l- I would like a well done Dog Soldiers, the board game, <laughs> because it they does have that, um, it, it could have that sense of immersion a sense of hectic frantic action and you could have uh, uh, you could either do it co- cooperatively or you could do it like the different sides one being the werewolves one being uh, the soldiers uh, we, where you would have uh, different sort of different ways of uh, achieving victory depending on what side you play which is a function I always enjoy um because it makes it 
well done that makes it for a really good game that has a lot of replay value uh i would like the opportunity to um uh, sort of fill with it and a game that really that was easy to play and easy to sell to other people and not selling as in you know getting money for it but getting people to play it so it means it has to i would like it to look good i want it to look exciting i want it it should be easy to explain so you just okay if you're playing the werewolves well, what you have to do is and then you could just you know sum it up in like two or three sentences uh, because that i think that's the biggest issue with board games is that first time when you have to when you have to explain the rules to some people who haven't played it before uh where it can get really tedious unless and a lot of gamers are not that good explain at explaining <laughs> unfortunately which is um um you know i would like yeah on, on a side note i would like um gamer or game producers of games like fancy flight if you're listening take heed um you would write down like a few paragraphs to help the owner of the game if you're telling your friends to start if you want to get your friends to play this game tell them this this is what you should say so that they will understand what the game is about and how it works uh i really enjoy every every single time a game comes out with comes with a like a small cutout or something like this is the turn sequence something that's really easy handout that just can show people so but i would like i would like a werewolf action-based game um my other that's my other monster fetish actually aside from zombies are werewolves you wouldn't choose a werewolf versus zombies board game no i think that would be like overdone <laughs> actually uh and it's not really uh, it's one of those where you couldn't pick a side where you'd have to you know oh who are the bad guys if you had that you'd have to have you have to have the human perspective because just having uh I mean, I, I really get off on werewolves. I, the best role-playing game ever was Werewolf the Apocalypse. Um, maybe not the best one ever, but I really enjoyed playing it. And if you if you don't have a human perspective, it gets really skewed. It's one of the problems with sci-fi games, for example. If you're going to play an alien race, it's really difficult, if you want to do it seriously, to try to understand, okay, what's an alien perspective? How do I, if I'm sitting by this table and I'm going to, for example, if I'm role-playing, I'm playing, um, let's say I'm playing one of the, oh, what are they called? I know the name, the, uh, the Greedo in Star Wars. What's the name of his race? Uh, you, you know, the one that Han Solo shot first. Uh, yeah. Action <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his race. Anyway, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to play that around the table, how do you, how do you put the picture in the other player's head that you actually have a little bit of a snout and a little bit of antennas and really large unblinking eyes? That's a really hard act to pull off <laughs> to try to if you want to try to talk something along those lines that he does or if you want to it's like really difficult so i think that uh sticking you have to have a human perspective unless you have like a really that's why for example i don't like sp like space battles and board gaming style uh, because usually it's just you're just shuffling around little pieces it's hard to get involved it's just oh it's just a ship and you don't get the sense that there's actually people on there uh, or it's never really it's not really it's never uh, really uh, emphasized that there's people involved but if there are people involved it gets a human interest and then then i can you know get into it in that sense so your conclusion seems to be that you don't really think there's so much of a generation gap right 
I don't think so. No, I think I think the generation gap is that the old those of us who are a little bit older um, grow up with the sense that we were doing something that was a little bit, you know, uh, not it was it was uh, it wasn't mainstream. It was a little bit off the beaten path. It was even sometimes even a little bit rebellious. And the younger and the younger generation, so to speak, have never had that onus to do um, connected with their with their hobby or it's been um, apparently or this my my image of it is that or my experience of it is that it's always been it's been more natural for them. Thank you very much, Ulf, for gracing us with your presence here on Chasing the Dragon. Um, you elevate us to a level we wish we we only thought we could have barely achieve. Yes, Ulf is a true Renaissance man. So, Ryan, I can say that we have a really interesting kind of discussion here where we really frame a lot of different experiences from the late 70s and how the gaming landscape was kind of in its fruition and its in almost its infancy and then how it's really come about to something new. Um, I love how Ulf speaks about how now gaming is more of this kind of social aspect, no, not so much more of, uh, hey, I'm going to defeat you and ha ha ha. Well... Now I think about it, my generation, the generation who began gaming in the late 1970s and early 80s, mostly entered into the board gaming world through role-playing, specifically D&D. The generation who began gaming in the 90s seemed to mostly uh, enter through video games, uh, maybe card games like Magic. One question I have for you is... Um, what about the people who were born after 1990? That's a little bit later than you, but um, what do you think that those people played the kind of neighborhood games that I played growing up and that I think have been played kind of for generations and generations? Uh, games like Cops and Robbers, Cowboys and Indians, Capture the Flag, um, Hide and Seek... We played a lot of those games, and a lot of those games were kind of mm, where you were almost role-playing characters. So, Andres, what do you what do you think? What what are your some of your some of your experiences having uh, being since since you're a person from the next generation after me? Um, well, actually, I'm glad you bring this up too because listening to Ulf's interview, I kind of thought the same thing. I thought. Uh, at least I thought at one one point, I thought role playing kind of begins when you're a kid and you do play those things like hide and seek or um, you guys play like cops and robbers and stuff like that. And I remember something I immediately thought of, like an anecdote about that is when we were kids, at least with like my cousins and stuff, we didn't really play cowboys and Indians and cops and robbers. We always played Pancho Villa y Zapata contra los Hueros, which basically means um, Pancho Villa and Zapata versus, um, let's say, the Americans. I guess the reg the actual term would be against the white people. Um, I should say that um, my mother is Native American and my father is uh, Mexican. 
So I guess maybe it never occurred to me to play like the typical Cowboys versus Indians, but I mean, only because I didn't really know about it. I mean, I played with most of my cousins and then it's what we always would play. Other than that, um, you know, when I was still a kid, we would still go outside and play things. Uh, I loved rainy days, which are very few and far between where I'm from. Because uh, then the the gutters, the streets and like the rain gutters would then fill up with water. And we used to like to make little paper boats or little plastic boats and try to watch the watch them for see how long as they go or race them because inevitably one would sink because of all the different water they're soaking up so that was always kind of fun to do um i think definitely after my generation at least where i'm from people stopped playing outside i think uh, the media and just the overall culture has more or less made parents paranoid about letting their kids even be outside unless they have like constant monitoring and stuff so, yeah, anyways, but as far as the rest of my generation, I totally agree with you in the fact that I think um, a lot of us got into the gaming hobby, at least that exists now, through things like Magic the Gathering and other stuff like that. I know, personally, for me, I got in because of Magic. Magic got me into the Wizards of the Coast store. The Wizards of the Coast store sold other board games, and they sold D&D. Um, I got into D&D because of Magic, and uh, Magic is pretty much just the D&D card game. Um... I know for a fact there are dozens of other people who learned th- terms like mana, hit points, H and uh, XP from thing from video games. You know, video games like World of Warcraft or even fa- uh, Final Fantasy, they they have XP and HP as well. So I'm sure a lot of my generation got into the gaming hobby through like old video games as well. Uh, not me though. I never got into World of Warcraft. Uh, most of my gaming was during the 16-bit generation. And I, I guess my game, my video gaming has just remained very separate from my, my tabletop gaming, at least in my mind. Okay. Originally, I know we were talking about the generation gap, and then we decided after this uh, exploration and um, interviews and everything we did today, we said, no, nah, it's not really generation gap. It has more to do with individual people. Maybe there's some changes, but not really generation gap. I would say, though, that there's still a reason why I will always, I have always, I will always come in last place when I play Dominion. I think there has to be something that <laughs> the way I learn how to play games and um, just I think that's a generation thing. I'm sure there's a lot of people in my generation who are very good at Dominion. I don't know. For me, that's that's the reason why that I thought about this idea for the topic was because I am horrible at Dominion. What do you think, Andres? I think you just suck at Dominion. But uh, plain and simple, no offense. I just think you just suck at Dominion. Um, I just don't think it has much to do with like a generation thing. I think that just, you know, you don't get Dominion. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining us this week for Chasing the Dragon. And we will see you. Well, we won't see you, but you'll hear us again two weeks from today on Chasing the Dragon.